It may be hard for you to imagine that I could ever be an obnoxious teenager, but I was. And there's some of you going, yeah, we kind of thought you probably were. And I was. I was, I was kind of obnoxious when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And I had a friend of mine who had an older brother who just hated my guts. And with good reason. Like, I was really obnoxious to his older brother. I was, uh, I was, I was smart-mouthed. I was always mouthing off to him. I mean, he was way bigger than I was. He could have crushed me like a bug. And, and, and that was part of it. You know, I knew that he was so much bigger than I was that I knew that he'd probably get in trouble or people would think badly of him or whatever if he was ever to do anything to me. And so I kind of got away with just being really mouthy to him. And so, uh, to make a long story short, the day that I was baptized, I came out of the water, and the first person to greet me was this fellow t- to whom I had, was always so obnoxious. And the way that he treated me at that moment was completely different from any way that he had ever treated me in my whole life. You know, he, he embraced me. He, he actually said, he, like I can quote it because I remember it so clearly. He said, I love you, Kel. Those were his exact words. And I was just blown away by this guy who had, in a matter of moments, completely changed his relationship with me. And of course, it wasn't, it wasn't he who was changing his relationship with me. It was the Lord who was changing his relationship with me. Now, as it turned out, I found myself still obnoxious after that. There were times when I still was, was not, uh, like I, you know, it took a while for the Lord to kind of work out of me the mouthiness and the obnoxiousness. But my, but my friend's brother, who was older and maybe more mature than I was, continued to treat me well, even after that. And I appreciate very much the fact that he did. And that's because he, he recognized that something was going on with me. He recognized that I had been a sinner And that while still committing sins, something had changed with me. That I was no longer the person that I had been before. That something new and different was going on in my life. And that new difference, of course, was Jesus Christ. I want you to look at Luke 15 with me. This is on page 740 in your Bibles, in the Pew Bibles, if you're looking at those. One of the key principles in studying the Bible is context. You want to get the context of the passage right. And you can't just ignore it when it comes to uh, reading different Bible stories about Jesus or whatever uh, that Jesus is teaching. What is the context of the teaching of Christ? Excuse me. (coughs) Oh, that's loud. (laughs) With this microphone, you can't do much about that. Sorry. So the stories of Jesus are told within a certain context. We want to read those stories in that context. Now, sometimes, unwittingly, we will take stories out of context and do something with them that we shouldn't, uh, something other than what they're meant to do, but we don't really want to do that. However, it does occasionally occur. And the story in Luke 15, especially the one of the prodigal son that starts on verse 11, and we're really looking at three different parables briefly here this morning, is one of those stories that sometimes is taken out of context. 
You know the story. At least many of you do. It's a young man, a Jewish boy, who has an inheritance coming. He goes to his father when he's still a young guy, and his father is a long ways from passing away, and he goes to him and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. And the father, probably recognizing that sometimes there's just no reasoning with younger, obnoxious teenagers or whatever this young man was, decides to go ahead and give him his inheritance, and he does. The boy, of course, takes the inheritance, and he goes off, and he squanders it. And he squanders it in ungodly ways. He doesn't do at all the kind of things that he should do. And so he squanders it in what we would call today a partying kind of lifestyle. In the end, he ends up eating the food that only the pigs would eat. And he wants to go home. So he does, no doubt because he's recognized something about his father in the past that he thought would maybe make it okay to go home. He decides that when he goes home that he's going to have to just appeal to his father's mercy and maybe just have a place on the, on the farm there as a, a lowly servant. Goes back home and of course his father responds very positively. Embraces him, takes him in, they throw a big party. Well, I've heard the story used to teach that we should make sure that we're not prodigal. That we're not those who go off and do the kind of things that the prodigal son does. I've heard the story used to say that we should not associate with prostitutes. Good advice. I don't know that that's the heart of the story. I've heard the story used to teach that we should not squander what we've been given. Again, good advice. I'm not sure that's the point of the story. I've heard the story used to teach about the depth of the Father's love and mercy, which of course is a very good point. I'm not sure that that is the heart of the story. These are good elements. These are good things to teach. But is that what the parable of the prodigal son is all about? And I'm not sure that it is. Some of you might be thinking, well, I kind of need to hear that message. I need to hear the message that says I shouldn't squander what I have. I need to hear the message that I need to be obedient to my father, for instance. It's a good message. But I'm not sure that's what the story is all about. And here's something I notice which I find very interesting. The whole second half of the parable of the prodigal son is actually about the older brother. It's not about the younger brother. It's not about the squandering. It's not about taking the inheritance and doing something with it that you should. The whole second half of the parable is about the older brother. It's about his response. His response and in contrast to the father's response. And when I say the father, I mean in this case the father, the earthly father. But of course, the story is about the heavenly father's response. The father when the son returns, greatly rejoices at his son's return. The older brother, on the other hand, becomes angry. He gets upset at his younger brother, who has squandered all this and comes back and is now treated like a king. And he doesn't like that very much. Well, my thought is that it's the older brother's reaction that fits perfectly with the context. Now, notice the other two stories. The story about the lost sheep and then followed by the lost coin. You don't hear anything in those stories, really, 
about either the sheep or the coin. We don't know why the sheep was lost. We don't know why the coin was lost. Nothing is said about the sheep and how they felt while they're out there all by themselves. Nothing is said about the great value of the coin or where the coin was when it was lost. In fact, it just says that there were 10 coins and they lost one. And then it goes on to say that the coins were worth each about a day's wages. Well, that's a loss, but it's not a fortune. So we don't hear anything really about the sheep. We don't really hear anything about the coins. Instead, what we find is that the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin really focus on one thing. They focus on the looking for and rejoicing at finding that which is lost. Now, it seems to me like that fits very well with the story of the son as well. The focus is not so much on what the son has done, the younger son, in going off and doing what he's done. The focus is instead on the reaction of the father and then reaction of the son, the older son, in response to what the younger son has done. And so concern about that which is lost and rejoice upon finding it is, I think, Jesus' priority, and that's what he's trying to teach in these stories. In fact, I would say that the point of the three parables is easily seen by looking at the first two verses of this chapter. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The text says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, what I find interesting is that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were probably justified in thinking what they were thinking about the sinners. Tax collectors were not good people. And everybody recognized that. They tended to rip everybody off. And so they didn't have a good reputation because of the way that they treated other people. The text specifically says that the sinners were sinners. It doesn't say that they were supposedly sinners. It says that they were sinners. And so when it says that the Pharisees had an attitude about these people. These were strict observers of the law, the Pharisees were. They knew who the tax collectors were. They knew who the sinners were. And I think that these were Jews who were not living well before God, and the Pharisees were in one sense absolutely justified in the way that they were thinking about them. Like, I don't think that the Pharisees were looking at the tax collectors and the sinners and were just hypocritical in the way that they were viewing them. I think the Pharisees looked at a group of sinners and said, these guys are sinners, and Jesus, by associating with them, is associating with sinners. And he shouldn't be. And so we have Jews who apparently knew well the law, who were following the law, and we had some other Jews who probably knew the law also, but who simply refused to obey it, and the Pharisees on that basis were judging them. So Jesus' point, it seems to me, is in this case about religious people having the same attitude towards sinners that Jesus does. Because there are some sinners, the Pharisees don't have a good attitude, and Jesus, in fact, rebukes them for their attitude in the course of telling these stories. Now, there's three major elements I want us to see here, three major teachings. First, we cannot harshly judge or hinder sinners seeking after God. I think that's a bit self-explanatory. 
If somebody comes into our midst and we recognize them as a sinner, I think we need to be gracious and loving. We need to care for them. Most of you, I think, would all agree with that. This one, maybe not quite as easily. We cannot harshly judge or hinder sinners seeking after God, not even the religious ones we know whom we think are walking far from God. Now, the fact is, that's a little bit more difficult to do. You know, and I know people who are in fact religious or speak about being religious and who are walking a long ways from God. And the most natural thing in the world for us, I think, is to just think of them as hypocrites. But I think that's what the Pharisees were doing with these tax collectors and sinners. Because he's talking, Jesus is, to Jews about fellow Jews. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's talking about Jewish people. He says, these are Jewish people who are tax collectors, and we know that they don't do well. And then these are Jewish people who are apparently sinners, and they're not doing what the law says. And so there are Jewish people who are acting really in the place of hypocrites, and they're being judged harshly by the Pharisees. And that also, Jesus seems to be condemning. We know situations like this. And yet Jesus calls us to a different kind of attitude about them. When I was in high school, I was sitting in our church one day, and I had uh, become a Christian. I'd been a Christian maybe two, two years, three years, something like that. And a fellow walked into our assembly that I had known for a number, uh, a number of years. He had been my grade six football coach. He'd gone to Oregon State University, had been an offensive lineman. I think he had some pro tryouts, that kind of thing. And he ended up coaching youth football. Probably hard for you to imagine me as a football player, but with good reason, I wasn't very good. (laughs) And so he walked into the church building one day, and I have to admit to you that I was absolutely shocked. And the reason was because everybody in our town knew that this fellow was a murderer. He had killed someone. And he was never convicted of having killed someone. And what had happened was that there was a fellow in my junior high school, Tim Davis, and his mother had been running around with this football coach. Everybody knew that. One day, she turned up dead. They found her dead in a car just outside of town. And everybody in my town knew what had happened. Or at least we all thought we did. He was arrested. He was tried. And not unlike O.J. Simpson, he was acquitted. He was not convicted. Everybody thought that he was guilty. There would be people who would say, they knew he was guilty. And on this day, he shows up in our church assembly. Now, everybody in the place knows who he is. It's a small town. 
The church that day treated him with love. The church that day treated him with grace. The church that day, instead of treating him like a murderer who got away with it, treated him like a sinner who was trying to come and to hear Jesus. And that's exactly the story that you have here. Tax collectors and sinners coming to hear Jesus. And the religious people say, what are they doing here? And they even say to Jesus, or say about Jesus, he's spending time with them. And I suppose that it would have been easy for the people in my town to say, what is the deal with the church of Christ? That guy is going to church with them. We all know he's a murderer. He's coming and spending time with that church. Now, I'd like to be able to finish this story by saying that the fellow completely turned his life around and became the person that God would want him to be. And and the fact is, I don't know what happened with all of that. But I know that on that day, when the church had the opportunity to be something other than what the church should have been, they were instead the church. And they treated that fellow with respect. And I knew who he was. I knew, I think, what he had done. And if you ask me, do I think he did it? Yeah, I think he did. But they treated him with grace. And they cared. The third thing is, there must be an attitude of seeking after the sinner that supersedes our attention to the saved. Now, this is a hard one. This is a hard one because we have shepherds here and we know that they have a responsibility to seek all of the sheep and their welfare. But I think this passage is actually teaching a priority when it comes to seeking those who are lost rather than being so concerned about the sheep in our own pen. It's interesting, isn't it, that the 99 are left and the 100th one that's out there lost gets all the attention? The attitude is you go after the 100th one. The nine coins sitting on your nightstand are not good enough. The attention is on the tenth. That's the one that you clean the whole house for trying to find. The older son doesn't get the party, but his brother does because he has returned. And you read the story and the whole second half of the parable is about the attitude of the older son and how he should have had a different attitude. My point is that the church's ministry must be careful. I have to be careful. Our elders have to be careful that we don't spend so much time focusing on sheep who are in the pen, milling around, rather than looking for those sheep that are on the outside. You know, it's not uncommon for elders or for a preacher or whomever to hear about sheep within the pen that are dissatisfied. And it's easy for us, them, our elders, to get caught up in and focus on the sheep that are in the pen. And I think, of course, that there's a level of that that has to happen. There needs to be concern for all the sheep. That's the point. You're shepherding sheep. But these stories tend to indicate that the ones that we need to be most concerned about are those on the outside of the fence. That the priorities we have to have are for those who are the lost sheep. And I think that's especially true 
when we tend, as sheep, to want to focus on ourselves. Like, can you imagine, as the shepherd is going out of the gate to go find the lost sheep, one of the 99, saying, hey, wait a minute, what about us? You've got to take care of us. Where are you for us? How come the shepherd isn't taking care of me? I need some attention. And I know that sheep aren't capable of going and looking for the lost one themselves, but you'd think that the sheep themselves are supposed to be more concerned about the lost sheep than they are about themselves. And sometimes we're not that way. The fact that all the younger brother can do is complain when his brother returns makes me think that he didn't do a whole lot of looking for him while he was gone. He seems to have been focused on what he was going to get or what he currently wasn't getting. He says, I've faithfully obeyed you all these years and you won't even let me have a goat to throw a party with with my friends. What about me? I want some attention here. Give me what I want. And he isn't asking when he says that, where's my brother? Or I'm so glad that he's home. Now, the father is gentle in response to all this. He says in so many words, don't you understand? Your brother has come back from the dead. But that's exactly the point. He doesn't understand. We miss the point when what we are receiving from God in the church is more important to us than what the lost are receiving from God and the church. And if we're just worried about ourselves back home in the pen, I think that's a problem. If you don't get your way, for example, um, but the ministry of the church has positively affected the lost in helping them to return to God, then at some point we have to put uh, our own desires behind those who are lost. At some point, we need to say, I'm not as interested in getting what I want as I am in the lost, hearing about Jesus and receiving the gospel that they they so badly need to hear. Now, fortunately, I think that God has blessed us in this area, especially of late. There seems to be a, a renewed kind of fervor on our parts for the lost. And my impression is that this is incredibly healthy. I think we're pattering our mission Patterning our focus, patterning our attitude after Jesus when it comes to the lost. If you ask me how our leadership should spend its time, I'd say looking after lost sheep. And by lost sheep, I don't mean those who've opted for another sheep pen or something. Those sheep aren't lost, they're relocated. They'll be taken care of just fine in most cases. But I'm talking about the lost sheep. The ones who don't know Jesus. And I'm excited about our mission to reach the world for the Lord Jesus Christ one person at a time. And we need to be excited about that vision too. I praise God that right now in our church family there is a renewed vigor about recognizing that around us everywhere are lost sheep. People who don't know Jesus and who so badly need him. 
And I'm excited that we're trying to do something about that. If, if you're a person here today who doesn't know the Lord, if you're new with us, if you're visiting today, maybe for the first time, I hope more than anything today that you as a person who doesn't know Jesus has a chance to come to know him. What I hope you hear is that there is a God and his son Jesus Christ who through the Holy Spirit loves you more than anything and wants more than anything for you as his child, as his sheep, to be found by him. And the story of the, the son who comes back to his father and, and asks for mercy, who asks for forgiveness, that's the father who is waiting for you today. And he wants so badly to take you back, to put a ring on your finger and to kill the fatted calf and to throw a party and, to, and for all to rejoice at your coming back to him. That's what he wants for you today. And for those of us who are not there, but instead are the sheep. Recognize how badly God wants us to be thinking about the lost sheep. The one who is out there who does not know Jesus and who needs to understand the good news of Christ to be found by God. We have an amazing opportunity that awaits us as people to go into our world and spread with for them, to them, the good news of Christ. And so I would say, as I read these parables today, that we can do exactly what Jesus has in mind for us to do when it comes to responding to the sinners. We're a tax collector, quote, unquote, to come into our midst, or a sinner to come into our midst. We have an opportunity to respond in wonderful ways to those persons and for God to bless them with the good news of Jesus through us. We need to seize those opportunities. Let's pray. Lord, work in our hearts not just a mild desire for the lost, but an intense desire. Help us, Father, to see the need to seek after those lost sheep. Help us, Father, to search intently for them. And when people come our way, Father, we pray that we would be accepting and loving, caring, proactively going after them for you. Help us never to have an attitude of self-righteousness. Help us never to stand back and say, oh, there's a sinner. But instead, always to embrace those, especially those, God, who in, in some way may have turned from you and now need to turn back. Help us to embrace them with your love and grace and mercy and to respond to the sinful as Jesus himself respond to those sinful around him. Help us in this way to be like Christ. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.